You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. That's a promise that Jesus made to his disciples just before his ascension. The promise occurs in the eighth verse of the first chapter of the book that we've been preaching through the last several weeks, entitled The Acts of the Apostles. And that name of of Acts of the Apostles uh, was never there in the original documents as far as we know. It was placed later on. But anyone who's been a student of the book of Acts will soon notice that the book might be better named the Acts of Jesus, or the Acts of God, or the Acts of the Holy Spirit working in and through the church. Like watching a fast-paced hockey game, the Holy Spirit is sending the disciples all over the place at breakneck speed um, so that they can be witnesses in, in all of the known world. And that, by the way, is, I think, my first hockey reference in a sermon. Because the Seattle Kraken are now announced and coming to town. So, uh, Dan Trollson, we got to get together. You need to school me in how to be a good hockey fan. All right, so back to the book of Acts. I wanted to remind us of this initial promise of Jesus to send his witnesses into the world. Because it's easy to forget that God is in control of all things. If we just focused on what had actually been happening in Paul's second missionary journey, you might be tempted to see it as a, as a colossal failure. Like in Asia Minor, Paul is accused of being the god Hermes one minute, and then when he says, no, no, don't worship me, I'm just a man, then the mob turns on him, stones him, and leaves him for dead. In Philippi, he's put into prison and beaten in public. In Thessalonica, there's a mob of Jews and pagans who join forces to run him out of town. And when he goes to the next town, to Berea, they follow him there and chase him out of that town. If God is in control, then it looks like something has gone very wrong. At least if we look at the story from the perspective of a standard business model. I mean, if Paul was like a traveling vacuum cleaner salesman or something, he would have an abysmal uh, sales rate, right? Like he would just have no commissions. But that would be to miss the way that God often works. See, another way to look at the situation is to see that everywhere that Paul went, the Spirit was working in and through him to bring the most unlikely people to faith in Jesus. Magistrates in Sicily, a wealthy pagan woman, influential Jews. He freed slave girls and baptized the family of a Roman jailer. And the churches in many of these places that he planted still exist today. It's that eternal legacy that is the movement of the living God. And as we work our way through Acts during a global pandemic, it's especially encouraging to remember that Jesus is still the head of the church and author of history. What looks like a colossal mess on the outside may just provide us with opportunity to see God at work in ourselves and in the lives of other people in unique and powerful ways. In fact, I think that's exactly what's going on. Now, as the story continues, we find Paul in Athens, one of the most storied ancient cities in the known Western world. By the time Paul reached Athens in the mid-50s AD, it was a shadow of its former self. The city that was once the gem of the known Western world was eclipsed by Thessalonica for political power and Corinth for economic significance, but Athens was still the place to be for academics particularly if you are wanting to learn rhetoric, philosophy, or simply be exposed to the major schools of thought, both old and new. I believe this encounter not only 
the content, but the method that Paul employs has much to say about our current situation. But before we can grasp the significance of the story, we have to try and get into Saul's perspective a little bit. So Paul comes into Athens. Anyone been to Athens? What's the first thing you notice when you come into Athens? Well, besides the smog nowadays. I mean, the first thing that I noticed was the rich history. Beautiful ancient markets, streets, and temples, and churches. But towering above all of this is the Acropolis, the massive fortress on a hill in Athens that contained the Parthenon and other magnificent structures. When I was there in 2004, it was still stunning after centuries of plunder and acid rain had done their damage. But I can only imagine what it was like for Paul. And yet, that is not what immediately draws his eye. At least that's not what he reports. Instead, Paul is overcome, in fact, deeply disturbed by all of the idols he saw. Now, let's just take a minute. Paul has been to Thessalonica, Philippi, Berea. In those pagan towns, he would have seen dozens of idols and temples to various gods and goddesses, Greek and Roman. So to mention the idols here at all is saying something about Athens. Oftentimes, our English Bibles translate this sentence as the city being full of idols. But the Greek sentence carries the force of being under or submerged by idols. In fact, Cicero once noted that on either side of the roads heading into Athens, one would pass through a forest of idols. And Paul is provoked. That term is loaded because in the Hebrew Bible, Yahweh is often provoked by the idolatry of Israel. So Paul is experiencing this righteous distress. He sees a whole city and culture that is submerged by the harmfully false view of God that idolatry brings. And so Paul goes to teach and to learn, and he, he goes to the synagogue, which he usually does when he goes to new cities, because there's common ground. He knows in a synagogue that people will at least have the scriptures. But Paul doesn't stay there. He goes into the agora, or the marketplace. He goes to the places where people congregated, normal people, pagan people, Athenian people. There he would have encountered all sorts of philosophy and popular thought. And in particular, Paul encounters the Epicureans and the Stoics, two branches of philosophy that were prominent in Greece during the mid-first century, although it's well known that Stoicism was much more widespread than Epicureanism. Now, let me just say this. In the context of a, what, 20-minute sermon, any description of a whole philosophical school, let alone two, is going to be grossly generalized and simplistic. But it's important to understand at least a few parts of their beliefs that might pertain to the setting in this story. So let's start with the Epicureans, who adhered to the teachers of Epicurus, real creative, uh, who died in 270 BC. The Epicureans sought to be free from the fear of death. And they believed that if gods and goddesses were real, that they were in a state of bliss far out of our world. And therefore, they thought that it was worthless, a waste of time to worry about the gods and goddesses, that they're, they're just not part of our, our whole world. So instead of a religion that taught people how to worry about the deities and take care of them, who, who taught people um, about the afterlife and judgment, Epicureans taught that there was no divine intervention, and there is no life after death, and therefore no judgment. And so the goal of life for them was to pursue pleasure and avoid pain. Now, sometimes Epicureans are caricatured as hedonists, 
who only care about the pleasures of the flesh. And just like any movement, some of them were. But the purest form of Epicureanism actually promoted simplicity and a way of navigating the world that was designed to make the least amount of waves. So avoid conflict and even complicated relationships and you would have a chance at avoiding pain. Or so was the thinking. But unfortunately, living that way wouldn't make a very worthwhile lover or politician or soldier or philanthropist or, well, any vocation that might require conflict and pain. Now, Stoics, on the other hand, didn't only believe in gods and goddesses, but they were pantheists. They were founded by the philosopher Zeno, who died in 256 BC. And they believed that the divine, the lines between the divine and, and the earth were blurred so that every human and animal and inanimate object had a bit of God in it. That God was the stuff and the people and the people were part of God. Stoicism understood the universe to run on the whims of fate. So each person had a predetermined path for them, and the way to reach happiness in their view was to find that path and to stay on it, to do one's duty no matter how painful life was. So as Paul is mingling and exchanging ideas, he catches the attention of the academy. This is the group of people who can regulate what is taught and when it can be taught in public, if at all. And so these philosophers get together and they call Paul an idle babbler, which is pretty offensive in any day and age, but it's especially offensive in his day and age. Idle babbler translates this Greek word spermolagos. Sperm meaning the spreading of seed or the casting of seed, and logos is the word. And so the colloquial meaning was that a person who's a spermalagos or an idle babbler is someone who is like a bird who pecks randomly other philosophers' thoughts and ideas and then just spews them as their own without any of their own ideas. So it's extremely offensive and it's a way to cut someone down in public. Now, it would appear that this is a case where the established elite simply want to drag Paul into public and to hear his new ideas as a sort of novelty, like who knows, maybe he'll find, he'll say something interesting. But there are a few clues here that tell us that this scene is much more than an invitation to Paul just to share his ideas. And the first clue is that the, the crowds declare that he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities. And this was because he was teaching Jesus and the resurrection. Now, hundreds of years earlier, in Athens, the great Socrates himself was put on trial, convicted, and sentenced to death for proclaiming strange deities. Luke, I think, wants us to make this connection between Paul and Socrates, and he wants us to feel the danger that Paul could be in any moment. Now, when they took him to the Areopagus, this isn't a nice way of saying, hey, Paul, why don't you come share your teaching and your ideas with some of our civic leaders? It's more like they took him to the Areopagus, which was this council made up of philosophers and elders and city leadership. It's not so much a legal trial as it is like a congressional hearing where they're going to listen intently to Paul. And if he slips up or makes some major mistakes in his theology or his philosophy, then they might put him on actual trial. And he could be sentenced to death or banished or any sort of thing. Okay. Now, the Areopagus was a council that met on the Areopagus. It was also a place. It was a hill. Ari, from Ares, the god of war, and Pagas, which is 
the Greek for hill. And of course, when you have the Roman reckoning of Ares, it's Mars. Mars is the god of war in the Roman pantheon. And so that's where we get Mars Hill and that Paul gave this sermon on Mars Hill. Kind of fun fact. Okay, so let me just pause for a minute. The text we're looking at right now is just dripping with historical and philosophical references. The summary of Paul's sermon in Luke records um, this masterful piece of rhetoric and theological meat, and I'm hardly going to get into any of it, because by my reckoning, I've got about a thousand words until I need to land this sermon. And so I just want to say, if your interest is piqued, I encourage you to dig into this passage, to follow the rabbit trails, because you will not be bored. But what I really want to drive home is how God's character is revealed through Paul and how that can matter for you and I uh, as we interact with the world right now. So Paul encounters this gross idolatry, a city submerged by idols. And if you've ever seen statues or frescoes or mosaics of classical Mediterranean art, well, there's very little left to the imagination. Human bodies were hypersexualized. Lewd sayings were in the graffiti and the poetry. One time I remember Corey and I walking through these ruins in Pompeii that, of course, were preserved by the ash of Mount Vesuvius. And we go into um, the foyer of someone's house from centuries and centuries ago, and there's this fresco of, um, uh, well, I'd rather not say it, but it's not suitable for children. And that's just the way it was. And so Imagine Paul, a Jewish guy who used to be a Pharisee and now a devoted follower of Jesus. He comes into this town and he could have just said to himself, you know, these people are way too far from God. They're too far gone. They're never going to repent and to come to know Jesus. And, and while he's there at the Areopagus, kind of with the pressure on, you know, he could have totally soft sold it and just weaseled his way out and gotten out of town and been safe with his life and wiped the dust off his feet. But in Instead of being judgmental or fearful, Paul assumes that God loves his children, even his pagan children who are lost in the forest of idols. And from the very beginning, we've seen um, that Paul's voyages have been redirected and altered and rerouted by the Holy Spirit. And Paul has come to know that wherever he is, is where God wants him until like mobs chase him out of town or God tells him to go somewhere else. Now, what if we lived our lives like that? What if even in the midst of all the craziness that's going on in the world and in the lives of our friends and neighbors and coworkers and classmates, what if you came to think that God had you right where you are for a reason, for such a time as this? That he has you in these relationships for a reason? And what if the person you're judging on the inside or maybe on the outside, maybe on social media or whatever it is, uh, maybe you could come to a position where you see that that person is someone who God loves and who Jesus died for, because he did. You know, lots of has been written about the genius of Paul quoting pagan poets in the, his sermon here in, in chapter 17 and as a way of finding common ground with the various schools of philosophy. But the subtext to all of that is this question. How does Paul of Tarsus a Jewish Pharisee, a Roman citizen, how does he know the inner nuances of the Epicureans and Stoics? The answer? He listened to them. He spent time in the Agora, the Greek marketplace. He spent time with actual people, not caricatures of them, not straw men on social media, not false arguments. He came to know what mattered to them, not just their theology and their rhetoric. 
And what he came to find, and what I find so helpful, is that the Athenians, for all their idolatry and all the deism of, of the Epicureans and the pantheism of the Stoics, they were all of them groping for God. They were longing for the truth, for the Holy One, for Yahweh himself. And once Paul comes to understand this, he's able to stop, stop being defensive and to start being gracious. And he meets them in the dark room of their groping. And he goes into their polytheistic world and he gives a name to the unnamed God. And he starts with their view of creation and he gives a name to the creator. And he picks up the longings of their poets, but where those poets express their longing in a pantheistic outlook, Paul makes it specific. Not so much that we live and move and have our being in God, like God is the earth, but by God, in his creation. And I just have the question that who in your life appears far from Jesus? And what if you were able to believe that the Holy Spirit is already at work in them and pursuing them? And, and this next thing is a little bit harder, but go with me. What if we could assume that bad behavior and different beliefs were the result of deep longings and desires for God that have become twisted and skewed and warped, and yet betray something pure and human and worthy of compassion? I'm not talking about condoning bad behavior. I'm talking about having uh, an understanding that behind that behavior and those beliefs is a longing for the holy, for God himself. See, God is seeking people, even people who have given themselves over to idols. And Paul brings the good news that not only is there a specific God who created all things and became flesh and overcame death through the resurrection, but that very God, Jesus, is calling people, all people, to repentance, to join him and his family in his story. Paul goes into the darkness of the pagan groping for the holy, and he turns on the light, revealing the very one that they're longing for, Jesus. And I find this so encouraging in two ways. First, everyone in my life, no matter what, is longing for Jesus, whether they know it or not. Sometimes the most extreme behaviors and addictions betray the deepest longings for Jesus. How can we join with the Spirit in prayer that those longings would be realized through repentance and commitment to Jesus? Second, if you're honest, you know that your own longings for Jesus are not 100% fulfilled. You know that even if you're already a baptized, professing follower of Jesus, even if you're the pastor of Lettered Streets Covenant Church, you know, like I do, that we all still long for God in many of the wrong places. Success, pleasure, people-pleasing, competition, you name it, it's out there. We do it. And the good news is that the Spirit is ever pursuing us as well. 